I want to remind you about something about wisdom that we talked about at the beginning of the semester. Wisdom is not something you turn on and turn off. It's not something that there are ten steps to. It's not something that you can just um, you can just kind of put on tomorrow. Uh, wisdom is not starting to do the right things. Wisdom is a type of person. It's a type of person that you become. And the same thing is true of pride and humility. And so what I hope you hear tonight is an analysis of what pride is. But what I, what, you, what, I, what I hope you don't walk away with is five steps to be a humble person. Uh, one of the things Tim Keller says is pride is very humble. I mean, excuse me, pride is very shy, which is as soon as you start to think about it, uh, sorry, humility is very shy. Once you start to think about it, it leaves. Um, so to begin to think of yourself as humble is to, is to incredibly miss the point. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Proverbs. On pride and arrogance, then we'll consider the text. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Drive out a scoffer and strife will go out. Quarreling and abuse will cease. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Let's consider the word of the Lord. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Lord, thank you for your word, and I pray now that you would penetrate our hearts, that you would teach us, that your spirit would be present, dear God. Um, that we would see pride as the cancer that it is in all of us, dear Lord, um, that we would not be fearful of what it has to say about us, dear God. And I pray that my pride wouldn't get in the way. You know what I mean? Pray. Amen. Um, so this weekend I started to think about this talk. And when I think about what I'm going to talk about, I always think about like, all right, well, you know, what does pride look like at USC? What does pride look like, you know, with this group of people? And man, it was so easy to come up with a long list, you know. I was just like, Fox News pride, that's the worst kind, Republican pride. Like, oh, I'm so much better than everybody because I voted for Ron Paul or whoever it is for you. Or because cause Glenn Beck is awesome, because Rush Limbaugh's the bomb. I'm so much better than those people that watch Rachel Maddow, you know. So there's the political pride. There's also the, I just, I mean, I was just going on and on. I was coming up, oh, I'm just going to cream them on these things. Like, I just can't wait. And then I started to read guys like Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and, C.S. Lewis on pride, one of the first things they always said is, one of the key marks of pride is it's great at seeing it in everybody else. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and learning how to teach and learning how to preach was still a process for me. Uh, I'm, involved, I'm realizing every week involves more and more repentance. Um, and so I stand before you as somebody who's full of pride, uh, somebody who judged all of y'all this weekend uh, with pride. And um, C.S. Lewis and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon had these things to say about it. C.S. Lewis says this, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all those other things are flea bites in comparison to this vice because it can smuggle itself into the center of your spiritual life undetected. Jonathan Edwards, pride is the worst viper that is in the heart. It is the first sin that ever entered in the universe and it lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. 
and it is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchful in its ways of working. And nothing is so hateful to God and contrary to the spirit of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon, pride is a groundless thing. It has no cause. It is a brainless thing. It doesn't make sense. And it is the craziest thing that can exist. What would prompt men like this to say something so strongly? They talk about other issues. I've read them on other issues, other sin issues, things we struggle with and everything. Their language with pride is the strongest. And the reason why is simply, I think, because they're agreeing with God in Proverbs 8.13. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. And so they have these strong words. There's nothing more dangerous in our lives than pride. And one of the dangers of considering it is even walking in here tonight, what you've immediately thought is like, but pride is like coached up in us in so many other areas of the world. There might not be anything that Christianity and, in a sense, the world, culture, whatever you want to call it, sin, are more diametrically opposed on than the issue of pride, right? We're coached up in pride, the way like we appeal to people to be better, to believe in themselves, which is the most prideful thing ever, right? Have pride, that have some self-respect, you know? They have low self-esteem, you need high self-esteem, you need to think more highly of yourself. Like, this is one of the world's most, like, kind of, one of the coaching tools they lean on the most. And here, these fathers of the church and God hate it. It's say it's actually the worst of all sins. It actually is the foundation of all sin. So why? We have to consider it tonight. And I hope, um, I hope that you'd be willing to be exposed. This is really my hope. Um, first, though, let's define what it is. Two things that pride is. And the first one in there is arrogance. Um, and what arrogance is is an unjustified high estimation of yourself. Arrogance is an unjustified high estimation of yourself. And it's the, belief, it's the, it's the result of the belief that due to some, some of your choices, your character traits, your hard work, your political views, your CrossFit, right, your theology, your practices, your morality, your religion, that you indeed are really superior to other people. I've kind of got these certain areas of my life figured out, and there are other people that don't. And in a, in a real strong sense, I'm really I'm superior to them. And it doesn't necessarily take on the form of a brash personality. A lot of times we think that. It can often look like quiet smugness as well. And sometimes it's more reviling when it's quiet smugness. There's a higher sense of pride. Um, and, and we see this in the Pharisees. This is who Jesus just gets the most fired up about. These people who put us all to shame in terms of spiritual disciplines. So you've memorized the first five books of the Bible. You're not even in the conversation with the Pharisees. They gave away a ton of money. They did evangelism. Jesus can't stand them because they think so highly of themselves for their religious life. But arrogance, here's the thing about arrogance. It's not just your high thoughts about your good things. Arrogance also has this other form that's really confusing. It's actually also your high thoughts about your bad things. It can also uh, occur in a high estimation of your bad things. What I mean by this is your belief that your bad things are too bad, that you're too unworthy, that the gospel, that God, they can't restore or forgive this super evil dark sin that you're harboring or the the thousandth time that you've fallen. Okay, that's pride. That's pride to believe my sin is more powerful than God's grace. It's arrogance. So arrogance is not just a high estimation of your good stuff. It's actually also a high estimation of your bad stuff. But pride is also not just arrogance. One of the forms it most often takes today is actually self-absorption, an unjustified preoccupation with yourself. So it's both thinking of yourself 
very highly and also thinking about yourself a lot. Pride is thinking about yourself highly and also thinking about yourself a lot. Pride is also self-absorption, thinking about yourself all the time, being consumed with thoughts about yourself. C.S. Lewis says it this way, pride is always noticing yourself, how you're doing, and how you're being treated. This is us when our thoughts about our roommate are always the myriad ways in which they inconvenience and annoy us, right? And they don't understand our plan for the room. This is us when our thoughts are only about our pains and our distresses and our gripes and we can't enter into anybody else's pain. This is us when we think only about kind of pursuing our own personal piety, that what it means to be a Christian is for me to get my spiritual disciplines and my morality in order and don't see that the kingdom of God is something outward that goes forth at USC. And all you ever think religion is is me kind of taking care of myself morally and religiously, right? It's about me cleaning up my errors. It's not about God being proclaimed in the place where you are. See, this is a form of pride. This is a form of self-absorption. We think, my religion is just about me and God. It's just about me. It's self-absorption. And that's why we're so concerned with, are we really concerned with our own piety? We're trying to clean up our lives and all that kind of stuff, but we're rarely involved in loving difficult people and in mercy ministry, unless, of course, it can make us feel, us, make us feel better about ourselves. Right? Self-absorption is the belief that you're the only one worth thinking about all the time. So pride is thinking highly of yourself, and it's also thinking about yourself a lot. What are its dangers? And the first one was the one that just nailed me all weekend. The first thing is pride can't see itself. And you need to enter into the desperation of this point. You need to feel nervous when I say that. Because nobody walked in here thinking I'm proud. Because proud people never think they're proud. And in fact, what we'll get to later is you'll find out the only people that think they're proud are humble people. Pride can't detect itself. Proverbs 21, 24. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant and haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Proverbs 14, 6. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain. But knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. A, a scoffer seeks wisdom, but it's all in vain. A scoffer is the title for the proud person in Proverbs. And what the text is telling us is that the scoffer actually will seek wisdom, may even seek wisdom. The problem with the scoffer is not that he doesn't hear wisdom. It's that he can't detect the sin in his own heart. And so even in the face of wisdom being sought, he doesn't get it. This is what Jonathan Edwards is. This is his point. His thinking is that the opinion he has of himself has just grounds and therefore not too high. See, the prideful person never thinks my opinion's too high because the prideful person, what they, thinks, what they think is, my opinion of myself is justified. The prideful person will never enter in their mind, my opinion of myself is too high. No, what they'll think, and this is the definition of pride, that would be a self-aware person who's actually growing in humility. The definition of pride is someone who thinks, you know, my thoughts about myself are actually pretty justified. They make sense. It can't detect itself. It can't even see that it's seeing wrongly. The proud person never thinks of himself as proud. They just always think, hey, the way I think about myself is actually pretty justifiable. Pride can't detect itself, and also, it won't listen to other people who see it. Proverbs 13.1, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer doesn't listen to rebuke. There's nothing more offensive to pride than correction. Because to receive correction, by definition, implies a lack or an insufficiency or a weakness on your part. 
a misunderstanding. That, in fact, our estimation of ourselves was quite off. All of a sudden, the notion that you have it figured out is questioned, and the notion that you're good enough is in doubt. That's what correction means when it comes in your life. Correction is a frontal assault on pride. So it's always fended off. It's always watered down. And in worst-case scenario, pride hears it and presumes it kind of already understands the point. See, pride is your estimation of yourself based on your performance. And what that means is correction brings anger and devastation because it's a shot about your it's a shot at your own estimation of yourself as a good person. And that is Proverbs actually says prideful people are so difficult to deal with you might not should deal with them. Proverbs 9:8 Do not reprove a scoffer because he will hate you. Proverbs 22:10 Drive out a scoffer and strife will go out. Quarreling and abuse will cease. See, in pride, our value is derived from our performance. And so what that means is we never hear, don't do it that way. Maybe you should think about doing it this way. Can I really be honest with you? Hey, maybe you should try this. The pride, pride never hears that because pride can never hear care and correction and criticism. All it ever hears is attack. It hears, you're saying I'm stupid. You're saying that you're better than me. Pride always feels attacked and not cared for when correction, when criticism, when reproof, when advice come. And pride eventually wrecks relationships because pride is someone who can't hear what others are saying. And when you do hear it, you hear it as an attack on your person. Hence the prideful person, the scoffer, brings strife because pride can't bear criticism. It can't see itself. It doesn't allow, it won't listen to other people when they see it. And it's always in competition with people. Proverbs 9, 7, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused. He who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer. He will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. The scoffer always sees everybody else as a threat, as insufficient, as enemies at fault. Pride is always in competition. The reason pride lashes out at anybody else is because it is the great fault finder. There's no better way for our pride to cement itself and to convince us of our own goodness than to be able to point out the faults in everybody else. Fault finding is how we establish our superiority. And so pride is great at seeing sins in others, the weaknesses and the evils and the flaws that allow us to then distinguish ourselves from those people. And that's the Pharisee on the temple steps in Luke 18, who Jesus can't stand, whose prayer is, thank you so much that I'm more moral, that I have better theology, that I have harder work ethic, that I'm greater in relationships, that I'm more punctual, that I've got it figured out, unlike the tax collector. Jesus can't stand that guy if you read Luke 18. Pride is always suspicious of everyone else and not of itself, and it sees everyone else as competition. And here's one of the more dangerous ones. Pride can be often confused with true Christianity. And I'm just going to read straight from C.S. Lewis because I couldn't put it better. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I'm afraid it means they're worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but they're really imagining all the time how he approves of them and think them far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a pennyworth of imaginary humility to him to get out of it a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow man. 
I suppose it was of those people Christ was thinking when he said some would preach him and cast out devils in his name, only to be told at the end of the world that he had never known them. And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap. Luckily, we have a test. Here's a test for you. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than somebody else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God but by the devil. Let me read that again. Here's the test. Whenever you find that your religious life is making you feel that you are good and above all that you're actually better than some other people, you may be sure that you're being acted on not by God but by the devil. Hear the words of C.S. Lewis. The real test of being in the presence of God is that either you forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small and dirty object. It's actually better to forget about yourself altogether. Pride is often confused with real Christianity. And in a sense, the only way that it ever really gets exposed, this kind of spiritual pride, this religious-looking pride, is when you hear these people, when, you hear, when, when we begin to reflect on other people. Because the religious-looking pride, the one area where it gets exposed, when you see it, delight in the downfall of others and enjoy other people suffering the consequences of their actions. That's someone who hasn't tasted deeply of grace. That's someone who's deeply proud of their actions. Because someone who's deeply who's tasted deeply of grace, who's found their identity and the mercy of Jesus, they don't think it's great that certain people got AIDS or STDs and that they just, I mean, they just need to taste the fruit of their works. They don't think that, you know, people just need to suffer their stupidity. They grieve it because they know they're not any different. So pride, it can't see itself, won't listen to other people when they see it. It's in competition with others. It often looks like Christian religion and lastly, it leads to destruction. And this is the thing that the, the theme that Scripture is kind of most repetitive on in pride. Uh, pride comes for a fall. Proverbs 3.34, towards the scorners, God will be scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Proverbs 18.12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Why does pride eventually always lead to destruction? Because this is what it says. It says, judge me, evaluate me, on the basis of my work, because I've found myself as better than others, and I suspect you will too. And if your plan is to plead your goodness before the throne of God, if before the Lord, when He asks you to give an account of your life, you intend to appoint, you intend to point to how well you've kind of acquitted yourself in this life, you have no idea who God is. Because the reality is, and this is true, even before we think about approaching the throne of God and giving an account of our life, even before we get to that, we actually all know on some level that we haven't really even lived up to our own moral, religious, relational, professional, academic, whatever it is, standards. And we're actually choosing to lie to ourselves about our goodness. Do you really believe, before the judgment seat of God, that pleading for his acceptance based on the merit, the merit of your relative goodness to everybody else will have you much hope? If you don't hear anything tonight, hear this. If your plan is... When God asks for you to give an account for your life, to say, listen, I put some things together. I voted Republican the whole time, right? Whatever it is, that's a joke, kind of, but not really. <clears throat> if your plan, when he asks for an account of your life, is to point to the good things that you're pointing to right now, that's the path out of the new heavens and the new earth. That is the plan of all who will not enter the new heavens and the new earth. That's why pride leads to destruction. It keeps us believing that when the verdict is passed in your life, that your record 
our personal record will merit a verdict of well done. But at the end of the day, even the quote-unquote best of us, if that's even a right term, we actually already know that's not going to do. Our pride is our undoing. So what is the cure? Some sense it's easy and some sense it's really hard. The solution to pride is humility. But this is the tough thing about it. You can't simply decide to be humble. That's actually pride in and of itself. Today I'm, I'm going to make myself humble. I'm going to be a more humble person. I'm going to stop boasting. Humility is actually something that happens to you and you're never aware of it. You've got to be comfortable with this. Humility is something that happens to you and you're never aware of it. And it only happens, and this is the only way it comes into our lives, it only happens when you encounter the cross. Pride is only defeated at the foot of the cross. And humility only comes in our lives at the foot of the cross. Because you can't stand underneath the cross and any longer believe that your morality or your niceness or your grades or your great thoughts give you any right to esteem yourself higher than anybody. Because what the cross says, this is what the cross says about your life, about your best things and your worst things, but especially about your best things too. That all of your best was good enough to get you into this position. Someone has to die for you to live. That's how good your best is. That it requires death for you to live. That's what your best gets you. That's how far it got you in God's favor. The cross says that your, your sin is so evil and actually your best is so poor that actually not just anybody's blood will do, it'll actually take the blood of a God king to ransom you from punishment. See, when we encounter the cross, it eliminates the, the possibility of looking down on anybody for any fault. The cross says, you failed to justify yourself. We've failed to achieve the well done. And you can never merit the cross. Because that defeats the whole notion of the cross. If someone deserved grace and others didn't, it wouldn't be called grace. And this is where the Christian religion and every other worldview differ. Everything in this world says this, do the work, take care of yourself, and you'll be rewarded in kind. Work first, and then the approval and the recognition and the acceptance will come second. Work, get accepted. And pride is the result of living according to that principle. Do the work and exalt yourself. Get accepted. And the work is anything. The work can be anything. The work can be being Republican, being Democrat. It can be your grades. It, the thing is, is half of us in this room are really proud of our GPA. And the other half of us in this room, this is my class too, I'm in this other half, we're really proud that we don't work as hard as the people who have the really high GPA. We're both proud about the same thing. All the people with the 3.9, they're like, oh, I'm so better than all these people with a 2-something GPA. All the people with the 2-something GPA are looking at y'all 3.9 people and be like, oh my gosh, these people are so bound up in grades. I'm so proud of the fact that I'm not like them and I can actually relax and take the Sabbath seriously. Y'all both need to repent. <laughs> It can be anything. The world says, acquit yourself well, whatever it looks like here, whatever you choose to be proud in, and then you're accepted. The Christian dynamic is different. It actually says you're rewarded, you're accepted, you're approved, and out of that, live and work. It gives you the the approval and the acceptance. Nothing in the world prepares you for this. It gives you the approval and the acceptance on the front end and says actually live out of that instead of living for that. You're not accepted 
on the basis of your works. This is what Paul says. By grace, you are saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And this is what Paul says. So that nobody can boast. It's the cross alone that induces humility. And humility is nothing more than finally understanding who you really are before God. And this is what you primarily understand. You're inadequate. It removes competition and comparison. The cross levels the playing field. Prostitutes and churchgoers all of a sudden realize they're on the same footing before the cross. Girls who are sleeping around and small group Bible study leaders stand before the cross on equal footing. Frat guys and Christian schoolers and homeschoolers, guess what? All stand in the same place before the cross. They both need divine blood. And neither one of them needs it more than the other. To look on somebody else and feel, support, and feel a sense of superiority is to say, they needed Jesus to cover more parts of their life than I do. To feel superiority is to look at somebody and say, they really needed Jesus to cover more parts of their life than I do. Okay, what part of your life doesn't need Jesus? Because that's the part that's holding you back from the wonderful healing and miracle of God's grace. Whatever part of your life you think doesn't need Jesus because you got it together there. Even if it's your good and religious part, that's actually the most pernicious place of pride in our lives. The part in which we don't think we need Jesus. That's what's holding us back. See, the cross actually stands as a judgment on our lives. And what it says is, everything we thought we should be proud of is all for naught. And the sneaking suspicion that actually we all entertain at some point that we aren't acceptable is entirely true. And it's actually true to a degree and depth that we can't understand. The cross says it, the cross, because the cross says this, because Jesus on the cross says it takes death to pay for how inadequate we are. That we are guilty, that we haven't handled ourselves well. And it actually, this is what it does. When you begin to grapple with that, it actually frees you from having to be defensive. It frees you from having to shield off criticism. It frees you from having to prove yourself. Don't you want to rest from the incessant need to provide, to prove, and defend yourself every day? There is rest to be had from the incessant need we all have to, to prove, to defend ourselves every day. If you want rest from that, you have to come to the cross and see that the verdict is in on your life. You have not proved yourself. Arrogance disappears when we encounter the cross, and any high regard of even our best actions disappears. Paul actually calls it rubbish, and if I actually gave you the correct English translation, you would think I'm not a Christian, but I'd actually just be reading the New Testament, so I'll just say rubbish so that I don't create any confusion. Paul calls your best stuff rubbish, his best stuff rubbish. But encountering the cross doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just remove any sense of arrogance or pride or disdain for others. It actually also removes preoccupation. Because you can't stand in front of the cross and stare at yourself for very long. Whether it's in despair or whether it's in arrogance, you can't stand in the cross and navel gaze. It's impossible. Because the cross shows God's judgment on your life, and it shows him pouring out that judgment on his son as our substitute. You just can't navel gaze in that context when you see that that's what's happening at the cross. And this is why C.S. Lewis says about humility, the opposite of pride, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's actually just not thinking about yourself very much. 
It's not thinking less of yourself. It's actually thinking of yourself less. It's what Tim Keller termed, Elizabeth talks about this all the time, blessed self-forgetfulness. You simply just can't tear your eyes away from the miracle of His grace. You can't navel-gaze in front of the cross. It's only the grace of the cross that brings humility, that brings blessed self-forgetfulness. The cross says, it doesn't matter actually what other people think of you, but it actually also says this, it doesn't matter what you think of you. It only matters what God thinks of you, and He has justified you, He's approved you, He's acquitted you, He's accepted you, in spite of your life, not because of it. This is what it means. We don't have to die the thousand deaths of evaluating ourselves every day. We don't have to live every day wondering if today you provided more evidence for the prosecution or more evidence for the defense. You don't have to count that anymore. God has said the verdict is in, and you're righteous because I've held Jesus guilty in your place. Don't you want to not feel on trial every day? That's what he's offering. And it's when we see that God's evaluation of us is the only one that matters and that his evaluation is that we are righteous, not because of anything in us, but because Jesus became our guilt substitute. That's when humility starts to break in. And you see, here's the thing about pride and humility. Pride can never see itself Humility is the same and a little bit different. Humility can never see itself, but humility always sees pride. Humility can't actually see itself, but what the humble person sees in himself all the time is pride. The heart of of the humble one never thinks, I'm really growing in humility, right? It's impossible. It's a paradox. The heart of the humble person thinks, there's so much pride in my heart. And the only cure is clinging to the cross. The heart of humility doesn't run away from criticism. It doesn't explode at criticism. It doesn't grow anxious at criticism or feel threatened by criticism. The heart of humility hears correction and grieves because it actually knows all too well that the surface of the problem of pride and selfishness has only been scratched. The one who clings to the cross hears correction and isn't threatened by it. The humble heart gives thanks for it. The heart of humility is not in competition with others. It doesn't dwell in the faults of others. It gets no sense of self-righteousness by comparison to others. The heart of humility, having met the cross, sees that all have fallen short of the glory of God. The mouth of the humble never says this, but I. Proverbs 22.4 The word for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. The heart of humility leads to life because it clings to Jesus and it looks at its good stuff and it looks at its bad stuff and realizes, holding on to Jesus, this is all I have. This is all I have. This is all I have. And there's blessing and there's honor, there's life, there's freedom. When you stop staring at yourself and you see that the, at the cross, the verdict of your life, which is guilty, is poured out on Jesus and the verdict of his, his life, which is righteous, is poured out on you. Let's pray.